Good morning. I'm going to call attention to one more announcement in the worship folder. You see this thing for the banquet? Anybody got this thing? There's a, uh, that's this Saturday, and we could still use, we've got plenty of money, and I think we have uh, some need for additional persons to help serve. I think we need 20 or so at 1045 and another five or six. There's a round table in the fireplace room and a sign-up sheet. If that's something that's possible for you, we'd love to have your help. Good, worthy cause, so that's this Saturday. Talking about the um, the winds of change, the passage that Jesus talks about what the influence of the Spirit of God will be like. The Spirit reveals what God really thinks about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment are the pillars. Of society, they're the foundations upon which a culture and a civilization is built. To alter these things is to shake the foundations of society. And that's exactly what the Spirit of God does. He brings the winds of change and changes the way we look at those things. He change, change, the Spirit reveals what God really thinks about sin, which defines what's wrong. The Spirit reveals what God really thinks about Righteousness, which is about what's right. And the Spirit reveals what God really thinks about judgment, which is who is guilty. Um, what it says in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. It's in your worship folder. Jesus speaking, that nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, says the the helper will convict the world. The word to convict means to prove wrong. Jesus promised that the Spirit would prove the world wrong. The trial of Jesus was an assessment or an evidence of what the world thinks about sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit of God then would convict the world of being off base on all three accounts. Some have thought that the Spirit's task is to prove to the world its own error. So the Spirit proves the world wrong, but does he try to convince the world that it's wrong? Or That can't be because it contradicts what Jesus says earlier. Um, he said to his disciples earlier in the evening when he had this conversation with them in the last week of his life, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom... The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and we and will be in you. So what it says is that the world can't tune into the world's frequency. So whoever the spirit tries to convict 
it will not end up changing necessarily those who rule in Minnehaha County Courthouse. It's not that facet of the Supreme Court. It's not that will not be where the Spirit does his convicting work. He will prove the world wrong. But where exactly does he prove the world wrong then? Where is the courtroom? If it's not in government courtrooms, it seems to indicate in the text the courtroom is in the mind and understanding of the disciples. He will convict the world and prove the world wrong in their mind. So what will happen, the, the, the Spirit will enable the disciples to clearly see the world's guilt with respect to what's wrong, what's right, and who's guilty. They will, the disciples will have no trouble seeing what is real and seeing things from God's perspective. And what will be the result of this clarity? What does clarity bring? What does clarity bring? It will bring courage and conviction. Conviction means a couple of things. It says the Spirit will convict the world, and to convict means to prove somebody wrong, but a conviction also is a firmly held belief or opinion. And these two end up coming together. The conviction of the world's guilt in the minds of the disciples will fuel the conviction of the disciples' belief, they will see things more clearly and will speak out on those things more forcefully because clarity brings conviction and courage. Uh, The conviction of the world's guilt, again, will fuel their beliefs. Doubt disturbs devotion. At some level, we all believe, you know, we believe in the things that happen on Easter, all of us, and yet we might not be so clear about what happened. And the doubt or the questioning ends up eroding faith to some degree. It's one thing to believe. It's another to believe deeply. And what the Spirit will do, he will tell tell the world, prove in the disciples' mind what God really thinks about judgment. To judge is to separate into good and evil. That's literally what judge means. It means to separate. It means to take something and put one thing in this category or that category, to separate it into good or evil, right or wrong, truth or false. Um, God doesn't look at good and evil the way we do. And what it says, the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When we think the world, when it thinks about judgment, Normally we think that people get judged, people in general. But what the Spirit will convict the world relative to judgment, the Spirit indicates that God doesn't judge people in general, at least not in this context, but it it indicates that God judges rulers in particular. And with this thing, what it says, the ruler of this world is judged at the cross. It's interesting, isn't it? Who's judged at the cross? People, no, that's not what it says. The ruler of this world is judged. What is he talking about? In order to understand what happened at the cross, we've got to look, we must look and clarify three things. Who's the judge? Who is the judged? And what is the judgment? Let's take those one at a time. Let's talk about the judge. It says in Acts 17, Paul has been speaking 
to a group in Greece, and we have this closing of his comments. The time of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We can look back and understand clearly, you know, because we live on 2,000 years on the this side of the cross, that Jesus is God's chosen one. We understand that he is who he said he was. At the time, though, it was really confusing. Um, when everyone, when Jesus died, everyone was confused because there is a statement in the Old Testament that individuals were able to use. Here's what it says. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What it says is a hanged man is cursed by God. And when Jesus hung on the cross, those who wanted to discredit him would be able to do so. If we were in the crowd, it could be pointed out, Jesus is hanging from a tree. That's what the cross was called. And what does it say in the Bible about those who are hanged from a tree? They are what? Cursed by God. So what does that say about Jesus? Could he be who he says he is? Would a person cursed by God, could that person ever claim to be? And so we, you know what? Boy, it does say that, doesn't it? And boy, he did a lot of miracles and he sure seemed to be God, but there he is and he's up on a cross and, and a person who is up on a cross is cursed by God. Well, he can't speak for God. And that people were confused until Easter Sunday and he rose from the dead. Bang! He is who he says he is. How do you know? He rose from the dead. If, if he was cursed by God, God would never raise him from the dead, would he? I mean, if he's cursed by God, would God raise him from the dead? Absolutely not. The fact that he's raised from the dead, that proves he is who he says he is. He's not cursed by God. He's blessed by God. He speaks for God. Uh, so that's simple enough. The judge, simple enough. Jesus, God proved this by raising him from the dead. The judged, that's not so simple. Not so simple. Let's talk about the judge. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is judged. Who's that? He's talked about the ruler of this world several times in John. In John 12, it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in John 14, same conversation, he says it again. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And then the text that we read, John 16, 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of this world? Jesus told a parable, and I think that he might clear up some things for us. Look what it says, Matthew 13. It's in your worship folder. I'll read it. And you and listen, or read along with me. Jesus tells a story. Use stories to clarify things. Stories are catch your eye. And so he tells a story about a field and people sowing seed. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, Jesus told parables. They both clarified things and made things a little confusing. Fortunately, in this parable, he ends up telling us who the different players are. What does the seed represent? Who is the enemy that sowed the seed? Who is the one that sowed the good seed? What does the seed mean anyways? It's interesting. In the course of the story, they did what we would have done. There's good seed and bad seed in the soil. And the disciples said, what should we do? Should we rip up the bad? We have a tendency to do this. We think that God's ultimate purpose is to separate good and evil. Judge good and evil. Interestingly, what ends up happening, the master in this representing God says, you know what, you can't do that. Because the problem with good and evil is they can't be extricated now. Because if the root system is intertwined, he indicated, and if you rip up good, what do you rip up? If if you rip up evil, what do you rip up? Good. Good and evil are difficult to separate. It won't be that someday, but at this stage, it is. God, I think, does not want us to be preoccupied with good and evil. And we'll talk about what does he want us to be preoccupied with. The problem, again, with good and evil is that it's impossible to separate They asked Jesus some things. They said, good teacher. And before they can even get far with what they were going to ask, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know, it's interesting. Jesus didn't separate life into good and not good. He separated life into God and not God. Not what is good and what isn't good, but what does God say and what doesn't God say? And they said, Somebody else asked him, what good thing? And he said the same thing. They called him good teacher, and he said, no, don't, don't do that. And they asked, what good? He said, stop. He didn't say stop. And he goes, why do you ask me about what's good? There's no one good but God alone. In Jesus' mind, he didn't separate life into good and evil. He separated life into God and not God. That makes sense, though, doesn't it? Because in the realm where God lives, where he controls everything? Does God need to watch out for evil where he lives? Does he need to separate things into good and evil? No. When you live at that level, there's only two things in, well, really one thing in God's mind, that's God. And the only other thing is that which is not God. And that's the way Jesus thought. It's interesting. Anyways, but he goes on in this parable, the disciples said, we don't really understand this parable. And later on, and it's, it's included um, in the last part, the one who sows the seed, he ends up defining the players, which is really good, because then we can see clearly. I'm going to continue to read them. 
after the ellipses, and it says, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's, that's another term for Jesus. That's a term Jesus used to speak of himself. Okay. So you're going to end up plugging names into these things. So, yeah. Okay. So far, so good. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. Yeah, that makes sense. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Hmm. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Okay. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Okay, so a couple things. The devil is identified as Jesus' antagonist. In this context, then, I think we probably can say the ruler of this world, the one whom Jesus comes to confront, is the devil. Um, the word devil literally means divider. If this room were together, if you were all in a crowd, and I tossed something into the middle to divide you and to split you, I would have deviled you. Deviled you. That's to split something. That's what it means. That's what the word devil means. Somebody who throws something in the middle to divide. And the word Satan means to accuse. So to indict you of something. So when you put his names together, what the devil does, what the Satan does, he accuses in order to divide and distance, not just people from one another, but mankind from God. He splits. He separates. That's what he does. The ruler of this world accuses in order to divide people from God. Okay, so far so good. We got this. Okay, the one who plants the good seed, that's Jesus. The one who plants the bad seed is the devil. But what's the seed? In the parable of the sower, the seed is the message. But here, the seed in this parable is not the message. It's the messengers. So Jesus plants messengers, and the devil plants messengers. And that's what he ends up saying here, the sons of the kingdom are good seed. The sons of the evil ones are bad seed. The problem is with the messengers, not just the messages. You know when Jesus defined the problem? This is what he ends up saying to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful. It's the workers are few. What Jesus identified, the problem isn't really with the harvest but with the workers. It's not really with the sheep. It's with the shepherds. It's not really with the receivers. It's with the transmitters. Who did Jesus have the biggest problem with? The people who didn't know what the answers were or the people who claimed to know the answers and misrepresented them? Which one was it, the receivers or the transmitters? It was the transmitters. Those are the ones he had problems with. If you didn't know and didn't claim to know, you had no problem with Jesus. If you claimed to know and misrepresented, you had a huge problem with Jesus because what you would say would confuse others. That's why Jesus had real issues with those who claimed to represent the Father but misrepresented him because he came to reveal 
the Father and to say what the Father really thinks about sin, what's wrong, righteousness, what's right, and judgment, who's guilty. Jesus came to clarify those things. God didn't judge, and Jesus, revealing God, he didn't judge the people. Interestingly, he judged the people judging the people. Right? He didn't judge the people. He judged the people who were judging the people, splitting them into good and bad. He says, stop. Because when God judges, he doesn't judge people in general, but the ruler of this world in particular, uh, the judged. Not sin, not sinners, but the ruler of this world and his spokespersons. You buy that? Okay, the judge is Jesus. The judged is the ruler of this world and his spokespersons who speak on his behalf. Okay. Um, There were two groups of people claiming to speak for God, one sent by Jesus, the other sent by the devil. Here's a question. How can you tell one from the other? How can you tell somebody who speaks for God and somebody who claims to but is mistransmitting, claiming to be a shepherd but isn't? What it says, we talk about the judgment, says God made you alive with Christ, Colossians 2. He forgave us all our sins. And it's going to talk about how. It's not just going to talk about what God does. You've heard that, right? God forgives our sins. Here's a question. How does he do that? What does he do? Just look away, or does he forget, develop divine amnesia? How can he forget sins? We've all done lousy things. It's very difficult for us to believe that God forgives us. How does it happen? Maybe if we understood how it happened, it will be a little bit easier to believe. Um, Look what he says. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And then it says, look what it says in Colossians 2 having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What is he talking about? The regulations, written code against us, stood opposed to us. He took it out of the way. Nailing it to the cross? What is he talking about? You know, regulations are commandments. Stood opposed to us. It's that list of things that we were supposed to do but haven't done. You know the one. Keep holy the Lord's day. Don't lie. You know, right? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Those are the regulations. Don't covet. You know what it says he did here? And he forgave us because how many of us are indicted by one of those things? How many of you have lied? Here we go. Get you. You're lying. You didn't put your hand. (laughs) We all have. We all have. And you know what it's indicating here? All of us have a rap sheet. A rap sheet. And somehow he's taking care of it. You know what he did? He didn't nail the rap sheet 
All of us have one. He didn't nail that to the cross. Some people say that. He nails the rap sheet to the cross, all the list of things that we've done wrong. And, you know, there's a zillion of them up. It's not what he's saying here. He nailed the commandments to the cross. And if you remove, again, we'll talk, wait, 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 wait. Does, does God not want me to, you know, we'll get to that. But the commandments are against us. They indict us. And apparently he took that away, nailing it to the cross, the written code. The Law of Moses. I found a slide. This might be... I think that's what happened. Look at that. Jesus nailed the old law of the cross. Again, it reads in the bottom. You might be able to read, but it, it quotes the, the verse that we just looked at in a different version. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us since which was contrary to us. What, what requirements is he talking about? These ones. That's what he's talking about. That's what Jesus nailed to the cross. And when he raised, those were left in place. You know what this means? God is not counting your disobedience to the Ten Commandments anymore. It's been nailed to the cross. It's taken out of the way. And that's why he forgives our sins. The basis upon which we're found guilty was crucified. And then Jesus rose, but the law remained in place. This is what happened at the cross. And then the question is, why? Why would he do that? Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the last verse. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is... Do you, do you read what I read there? The power of sin is government, right? The power of sin is evil thoughts, right? The power of sin is coveting, jealousy, greed, murder, What's the power of sin? The power of sin is law. How in the world does that work? That's what it says. The power of sin is the law. In removing sin as a power, do you know what God did? That's what he did. Isn't that interesting? I have a question. How would it impact you? If you really believe that God wasn't counting your disobediences, I asked that I asked somebody that the other day. Would you go away and do a bunch of? You might make some mistakes and fall down. In general, it makes us uncomfortable to think that God is counting. Do you know what it does? The thought that God is counting. It distances you from Him. That's what it does. You know what it ends up doing? No kidding. Accusing, divide. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Accusing, dividing. Didn't I just hear about that? Didn't we just talk? Mike, didn't we just talk about that? What did you say devil means? 
divide. Now we sound like devil means to divide. And what did you say Satan means? To accuse, accuse, to, accuse, to. Is that how it works? And if he takes away the basis of accusation, he's taking away the basis of division? Is that the way it works? I think it is. I think it is. Wow. That's what happened at the cross. So he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The power of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The devil apparently is the ruler of this world uses something that the world uses and needs to use to keep people in line. What would we do if there wasn't law? We'd do a lot of bad things. I'll tell you what. Some of us exceed the speed limit. (laughs) And if there wasn't law, we would do lots of things. So can we get rid of law on a horizontal basis? Be anarchy. Be anarchy, wouldn't it? Can we get rid of law on a vertical basis? Yes, we can. What happens if we get rid of law on a vertical basis? If you believe that God wasn't counting, how would it affect your faith? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Did I just set this off? Did I? Did I? I I was actually thinking... Did I just push a button and are these my keys? And <laughs> hmm. uh, Do you know what the devil uses to assault people? You ever see the devil with a pitchfork? Do you know what the pitchfork, how many times it has? One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Are these commandments bad? No, the commandments aren't bad. But when they are in the hands of somebody who is sticking to divide and distance, do they become bad then? Yes, they do. And you know what God did? He took the pitchfork out of the devil's hand and threw it against the cross, and it stuck there. It's not in God's hands anymore. He stuck it to the cross, and Jesus was raised from the dead. God's not counting. That's the judgment. Um, Jesus' death terminated the rule of law. When you put your faith in Christ, you are no longer under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. You know what it's like? Let's say you're a diplomat, and you go to a foreign country as a diplomat, as a citizen of the United States. So let's say you go to France, and... Um, you are accused of breaking a French law. Now, if you go as a diplomat of the United States, are you accountable to French law? You have this thing called diplomatic immunity. What that means, now you're going to obey the law perhaps, but you are no longer under the jurisdiction. Can I tell you what happened at the cross relative to if you understand yourself, if you receive 
and believe that Jesus didn't just die for the world, he died for you. That he didn't just die to remove the law, but he died to remove the law from being over your head. And what that means, if you believe that, you know, you start to understand, I have diplomatic immunity. I am a citizen of heaven, and heaven doesn't divide things into good and evil. These are not what God does now. It's not how he looks at me. What would happen if you believe that? God is not counting your sin. I dare say this is what would happen. It would close the distance. You know what you'd find? No joke. You would find that your fear of God would begin to dissipate and the love of God would begin to increase. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Fear and love cannot coexist. You cannot fear God's judgment and love him at the same time. Not possible. So what God does in order to increase our fear is to take this away to decrease fear and increase love. You say, hey, whoa, 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 Mike. I'm almost done. This is a little bit dangerous, isn't it? This would be dangerous to believe, wouldn't it? You know what I'd say? This is dangerous not to believe. Because the power of sin is law. We're all prone to forget this. I think we're clear about the judge. We get that. We get the judge. Jesus is the judge. We're unclear about the judged and the judgment. The Spirit clarifies what happened on the cross. The Spirit clarifies what happened at the cross. Who is the judged? The rule of this world is judged. That's what the Spirit's going to clarify. And what's the judgment? The means whereby he accuses and divides is taken away. Um, Old covenant law is nailed to the cross. Okay, here's a question, and this is the last question. What difference does the cross make? Okay, you say, okay, Mike, if you say that the law was nailed to the cross, and what are we supposed to believe now? And God put a new covenant in place in one way. To, he puts the law in our heart, and he says, you're going to know me, and I'll forgive your sins and remember them no more. And so here's a way we've, and you might have seen this before, maybe not have if you're new here, but I think this is what it means. And you might remember those things because I think this is what the Spirit would whisper to you. You're still in him and you're still with him. Good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. Whoa, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I thought this morning. And you don't know the car ride here. It wasn't pretty. You keep that dress on. You <laughs> do things. You know what I think God would have you understand? Because Jesus takes away an old covenant and makes a new one. He's still in you. And he's still with you. And good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. You don't know what I did when I was growing up, Mike. You don't know. You don't know. That covenant has been set aside a new one. He's still in you. He's still with you. 
good still ahead of you, guaranteed. Some of you have sensed that you are so far from God and that's what you believed. This is what he would have you believe. He is still in you. He's still with you. Good still ahead of you, guaranteed. You say, okay, what do I need to do in order for that to... Believe it. Believe it. What will happen if I believe it? Fear and love. You know what he said? We love because he first loved us. Here's what you need. Worship team, come on up. What do you need in order to connect with God? To understand what happened at the cross? The judge is Jesus. The judge is the ruler of this world. And the judgment is the means whereby the ruler of this world would distance us from God, divide us by indicting us. The indictment is gone. And believing that, believing what happened at the cross will reduce the fear of judgment and increase the love of the Father. And you will find yourself loving him more and loving one another. It's slow. It takes time. And you say, Mike, this is all pretty confusing. Keep coming back. We talk about this all the time, week in and week out. Sometimes people get, we might get tired of it, but why do we talk about it all the time? Because it's the truth, and it transforms us. I'm going to close this in prayer. You might remember, again, if you're available uh, and look, Round table on the way out in that room. There's a sign-up sheet for the banquet. You can be there. It'd be a good opportunity. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for the cross and for the Spirit's work to help us to understand what's wrong and what's right and who's guilty. We tend to misunderstand that. It, it makes divisions. And you've sent Jesus to um, to do work on the cross and your Spirit to help us to understand what it is. Jesus is the judge. He will be the one that will preside. And the rule of this world is judged. That's what happened at the cross. And the judgment was about taking away that which ends up provoking the same things it prohibits. You understand all that. That's why you sent your son. So that fear of judgment would be replaced by love of you. And continue to help us to understand it more clearly. Not just to perceive it, but to be clear about it, convicted about it. Interestingly, not convicted of sin, and that's part, but it's really conviction of the fact that you've taken that away. And that clarity produces courage, love and honesty, all the things. It makes us more Christ-like. Anyways, continue to help us see the things we need to see. Thanks for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.